As we open your scriptures, Father, we ask that you would kill within us whatever is evil and whatever follows the ways of the King Herods in our culture. Let us seek rather to be like the wise men who would even choose civil disobedience if that's what it takes to worship you. So, Lord, we pray that you open our hearts to what you're going to teach us. Enlarge our hearts to pray for the world and hear our petitions tonight. This world's in great need of you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Merry Christmas for one last Sunday. Um, I, uh, what my family has done, and I just want to kind of just make this, just explain this, because I know, like, why are we still doing Christmas on New Year and blah, blah, blah. Um, traditionally, uh, Christmas was not a set date. The East and the West had two different dates for Christmas. Um, it started off with um, what we now call Epiphany on January 6th, seemed to be the earliest celebration of Christ's appearing. But it wasn't specifically wise men and shepherds and stars. It was simply a feast which the church celebrated to um, celebrate um, that Christ made God manifest to us. That's what Epiphany means. It's the appearing or the manifestation of God. And so the East actually celebrated the baptism of Jesus for Epiphany. Uh, because in the Gospels, Mark opens with the baptism, and that was when he was manifest to the world, was at the baptism or to creation. Um, so that was January 6th. Now, the West had begun to celebrate December 25th. There's a long story behind this, but essentially because Mary's Annunciation, when Gabriel said that you would become pregnant, they celebrated on, Jan- on March 25th. So you do the math, right? If she, if she conceived Christ on March 25th, What's nine months later? It's December 25th. So the church started doing Christmas, the birth, on December 25th. It was not in reaction to a pagan festival. Actually, records show that pagans started celebrating on December 25th because the Christians were celebrating on December 25th. That's why it's December 25th was chosen. So you can throw out that pagan myth. That's such a... That's, well, it's a myth. It's just not true. Um, so, But then there's 12 days between December 25th and Epiphany, January 6th. So um, what happened is the East and the West basically traded festivals. (laughs) So the East adopted Christmas and the West adopted Epiphany. So then you have this 12-day gap, and that's where the 12 days of Christmas come from. So um, my family this year decided to fast through Advent, because Advent isn't actually Christmas. It's preparing our hearts for the coming of Christ. I know society is all about Christmas from the minute Thanksgiving's over. But um, we wanted to do more of a waiting game with the Lord and fasting through Advent and then really celebrate his birth for 12 days. Um, so that's why we're still doing Christmas. You guys, if you've been here for a few weeks, we know we did Advent for a few weeks, and now we've been doing Christmas for a few weeks. So all that to say, um, this is it, because Thursday is Epiphany, um, just, just so you know. Um, so that's when our tree will probably get out of the house, if it makes it that far. <laughs> it's pretty withered. Um, okay. So, but tonight, um, the Holy Innocents, um, a very popular movie. I don't know if you're the sort that have seen it, but there's a movie called The Nightmare Before Christmas. It's this mismatch of, who's laughing? (laughs) You would. It's this mismatch of Halloween and Christmas, and it's just a weird twisted plot. Um, Basically, Christmas becomes a nightmare because it becomes Halloween, (laughs) But this in the Bible, what we have is the original nightmare of Christmas. 
And this is the nightmare after Christmas. This is the dark side of how the kings of the earth react to the news that the king of kings has been born. And they're still reacting this way. The innocents of Bethlehem who were slaughtered that night were just the start of Christians on the earth who have been slaughtered since because they won't bow to the kings of the earth. Some consider these babies in Bethlehem the very first martyrs of the church. I still think Stephen, I don't know, I I can see that, right? Um, That there's this idea that they died because of Christ. They may not have known him, but they died for him. And so um, they began to be honored as the first martyrs. Um, So the silent night that we sing is nice on Christmas, but it wasn't long after. And we don't know if it was two years later or if it was a few days later. We just don't know. But there was a point when silent night was rent in half by the weeping and wailing of Rachel. And Rachel is mentioned in Matthew because Rachel is the one of the matriarchs of Israel. You have Rachel and Leah, who eventually birthed the 12 sons of Israel, who become the 12 tribes. But Rachel is given the matriarchy. I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> the matriarchy of um, the nation. So she's weeping. She's the, is the embodiment of Heaven is shedding tears over the death of these innocents. Um, So uh, they remind us that there's still work to do. It's Christmas and we celebrate and we feast and we're with family and it's joy to the world and good news for all people. But Christ's second coming has not yet come. His first coming in one hand has brought a lot of light and hope to the world. But on the other hand, it has caused the darkness of the world to panic and make its last ditch effort to do its last havoc before they're completely done. When Christ comes again, we've got work to do until he comes again. So we pray, we do our work, we battle the forces of darkness. Um, I w- am now going to actually surrender the microphone to Michael Beavers and then to Guy Jacopuzzi. Uh, Michael Beavers, you guys know, has had a heart for a long time for the trafficked. And then a guy's, Guy and his wife, Noreen, have been working in the realm of preventing abortion. So, Okay, so I, I brought, brought Luke because it was a great excuse. He is an object lesson for tonight. Um, and I'll tell, tell you in a mo- moment how he plays in, into all of this. All right, but we're, we're going to talk a little bit about human... Oops, got to do the timing thing because I don't want Brandon to stress about the time. Okay, um, so we're going to talk a little bit tonight about human tra- trafficking and what it's all about. And one thing I'm going to try really hard to convince you of is that it really matters a lot, that it matters a lot to God and that um, each person in this room has a role to play in addressing that. Um, while we were sharing just now, somebody came up to me and they asked me two questions that I thought were great, and they totally relate to what I wanted to say tonight. One of them was, was who are you? And they didn't just mean your name, but who are you? And the other one is, do you tell it like it is? And I thought, well, we'll see. I don't know. Um, and uh, and so, so I think the question of who we are as disciples, it matters a lot in the context of what we're talking about tonight. So let me just give you some 
bullet points, and then I'll tell you how Luke fit, fits in with this, if he's awake. Um, and, uh, and so the bullet points about human tra- trafficking, for some, some of you that may not know, I used, used to say that uh, there's about 40 million people in slavery today, and that's more than there's ever been on the planet it's, it's worse than that. There's at least 47 million. It's kind of hard to know exactly, but we know there's at least 47 million in slavery. And yes, that's more than has ever been in slavery historically. So, um, so this is a big deal. So if you guys all, um, in the next few weeks, if you just make it a project to watch that latest Amazing Grace film, um, and, uh, and that is about William Wilberforce and about his battle against um, legalized slavery. And, uh, and it's a great movie. And, and so it's to- totally worth your, your seeing it. But the point is, this is absolutely current, and it's absolutely a, a central issue in the heart of God. And, uh, and you might say, well, why would you think that? Because a lot, lot of you maybe haven't even heard a lot about this. Well, let me see if I can convince you. Um, there's a passage in Isaiah that start, starts out saying, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my, to, declare to my People, their transgression to the house of Jacob, their sins, and so on. And then it goes, and then later in the passage it says, Isn't this the fast or the life that I choose to do what? And here's the list to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. And when I hear that, I think of not only all the different kind of ways of bondage, because I spent a lot of my career dealing with folks that are that are um, in bondage to addictions and to pornography and to gambling and to all kinds of things that are really bondage, right? That are yokes that need to be broken. And but I also think about okay, there are there are over forty million people as we're sitting here tonight that are in slavery right now. Some of them are in the United States. Some of them are throughout the world. Some of them are, um, have been sold by their parents because they just, that seemed to make sense to them. And we're not trying to judge them. We're just trying to say, yeah, that's, that, that had to be horrible. That had to be horrible on both sides, right? That to be so poor that you felt like you had to do that. So, so slavery is a horrible evil, and you all think, yeah, but what could I do about it? Well, I'm going to tell you some things tonight. Um, and so, so that's a list of the things that God cares about. Here are some more specific things. Is it not? Isn't this life, this discipleship life, isn't this to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house? which my wife stresses about. She wonders if I'm actually going to be doing doing that. Um, and when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, which I think means not to hide yourself from people that are just like you, right? That are of the same flesh that, that you are. And then the promise down below, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness. And your gloom shall be as the noonday. 
And I think what we need to hear there is that our success as disciples is actually bound up somehow with, with our, our breaking every yoke, with our being willing to do what we can in order to solve the global slavery problem. Okay, there is a handout back back there that you all can can get. So so this thing I'm I'm sharing with you, you'll actually be able to read this and take take this home. Um, the I created a little mind map of um, five things that I thought we could do. That I thought, okay, these are practical things that we can do, and if we do them, then human trafficking gets less because of what we did. Right. So seems like that's worth doing. And so one thing is is to is to volunteer, to volunteer with folks that are doing things for for the for the trafficked kids all over the world and also in the U.S. And there's ways ways of doing that and praying. I think praying is incredibly important in terms of us aligning our hearts with God. And and all of this, by the way, springs out of that text that I was reading. And then another thing is give, and I think we, we were kind of afraid of saying that, but, the, but I just think it is so cool that you can take hours of your time, translate it into money, meaning work, right? That you, you can go to work, you can get paid, which is kind of just a, a translation of your time into that money, and then you can electronically, really, really easily, really conveniently, then you can support people who are on the front lines of, of kids that are being trafficked. And so what I used to tell my team is that you're not going to solve human trafficking for 48 million kids, but could you personally solve it for one? And you could. It's not even very much money. I can write a check tonight so that so that one or maybe 10 kids who are in slavery right now will not be in slavery. That's pretty compelling, right? That's pretty cool. And I gave you two organizations that I totally trust on on this sheet that will give you ways of doing that. So if you don't happen to know of any groups that you trust, here are two. I totally trust the, these guys. These are people that are going to work every single day in order to figure out how to reduce the a number of kids that are being trafficked on the planet. These are people that actually believe that what they do may lead to slavery coming to an end. And uh, those are those sound like pretty cool people to hang out with and pretty cool people to support. Um, okay, so here's the Luke connection. Um, now, look at this dog. Most people really like gold goldens, right? And so, so it's not hard to like a golden retriever. Look, look at this dog and imagine, imagine that there was a movement on the mountain, on that there was some group, it must be a really, really evil group, and there isn't, but just imagine that there was a group that was, that was all about finding golden retrievers and abusing them in horrible ways. Some of you would be willing to invest some of your time, maybe some of your money in solving that problem, right? You would think that's bad. You would think that shouldn't happen. You would, you would look at Luke and you would go, that's just wrong. That shouldn't happen. Well, when I looked, looked at those kids that were in front, I thought, what a, great, what a great group of kids to symbolize the millions and millions of kids. Because in fact, of the 48 million people that are in slavery, 80% of them are women or ch- children. 
And so, so it makes sense to me that we're, that we're think, thinking about kids tonight, right? So, so that's, that's one thing we can all do. We can all give money. And um, here's the last big idea that I want you to get. You all know, there's a verse, verse or two that you all know, but I'm not sure you really know it. Um, and, uh, and I'll just read the verse, and I'll get to a certain word, and you will know what the word, word is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, for they shall be satisfied. And that's right in the center of Jesus' kind of man, his, his key sermon, right? So that's right in the center of that. And then later in the next chapter, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Those are, those are two places where that word is put and here's the problem that we all have. I think we miss the point. If you do a word study on righteousness, you're going to include the idea of justice. And justice includes the idea that it's not okay that people are being sold, that it's not okay that, that injustice is continuing. It's not okay that, that black people have less of a chance at success than I do. That that's not okay, right? That justice matters. And justice is right there in the middle. Do a study on it. It's right there in the middle of that word. And that word is right in the middle of what Jesus says to us in calling us to follow him, right? So the point I'm trying to make is this is no small thing. This is not just, oh, well, Mike, is he seems to care about this, and that's cool, but I'm not really planning on doing anything about it. No, it's in the middle of what God is saying to us. It's, I mean, it's right in the middle. If you blow this off, I think you blow this off to your peril. I think this is a big, big problem. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the integrity of your following Jesus is going to be solid, right? It's that big a deal. Okay, so what I'm saying is get a hold of this, of this sheet. It's in back. Um, use it to pray. I'm also going to use it to kind of ask us specifically what can we be doing. Um, it may be that some of us are going to get together and talk and pray and give and do do some stuff about this issue. I think this matters. I think this is a really, really important thing. And uh, I've just come to a point in my life where I have a lot more resources than I've had before. And so I have a lot more freedom, both in terms of, of, of money and of other things. And so, so I am ready to take some steps. I'm not saying I know exactly what those steps are, but I'm ready to take some, some steps. I'm ready to become a disciple in a full-orbed way. I don't think we always do that. Right. So so in terms of innocence, human trafficking is about people that are being bought and sold. It is it, it is a horrific, horrific thing. And um, as the church, we need to figure out what our role is going to be. And as a church, we need to figure out what the role of each of you is going to, to be. And for some reason, I always feel like the people on this side of the room are more committed. So I always kind of look, look over here, and I think these are the people that are going to be changing the world. So I'm not, not sure why, but I just think people on that side. Okay, perhaps it's not true. I don't know. Um, and uh, But I just want you to feel especially kind of that responsibility. Um, and uh, so I think this is a big deal. So let's pray. Lord Lord God, I know that was a lot, and I, and I, and I hope that wasn't... I hope that was a sharing of joy and of your heart and not of guilt. 
And I hope that you will take that and then grow some things, create some things, birth some things out of that that will please you. And, uh, and I pray for what's about to be said by Guy and, and for the mes- message. And I pray that you will just bring all that together in a way that really reflects your heart. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Good evening. Um, <clears throat> I'm Guy Jacopuzzi, in case anyone doesn't know me. When Brandon brought up the, um, um, how should we say, the slaughter of the innocents uh, that's described in Matthew 2, 3, 2, um, <clears throat> it brought up some interesting thoughts on my part um, concerning uh, slaughter of innocent children via abortion. The Bible documents um, two other major kind of issues with the slaughter of innocents. And the first one that comes to mind is in Exodus 1, where uh, Pharaoh ordered um, male Hebrew babies to be killed. And the uh, midwives, of course, rebelled against that. And if you read it carefully, it shows God blessed them for doing that, even though they apparently told a lie to Pharaoh. Um, the other slaughter of the innocents was a endemic problem with the Israelites when they embraced um, idol worship. Uh, especially idol worship to Ashtaroth and Moloch, where they would place their children on this uh, idol's arms that were out that had been heated with fire, and the child would be killed. Um, So the killing of innocents has kind of been with... uh, Uh, the history of mankind, kind of from the very beginning. And one of the things that I've talked about in past times when I used to give pro-life presentations, people would ask me, well, what can I do? And I'd say, well, please, of course, support us monetarily. But one of the more subtle things you can do is to apply a certain verse of the Bible. And in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, how can you apply this? Because abortion is legal, in our country, um, because it's legal, that makes it more accepted. You may be in a conversation with another believer or with someone who may not be that close to the Lord, and they're going to mention that they know of someone who's gotten pregnant and is considering an abortion. And one of the things I've always encouraged people is show horror when you hear that. React to it. If you don't react to it, 
I think you're denying Christ. And it's a very simple thing, but it's so easy just to let it go by in a conversation. Instead of saying, wait, who is she? Can I talk to her? Can I put her in contact with someone who can help? That's all it takes. And oftentimes, that can mean the difference between saving a life. Thank you. Thank you so much, gentlemen. When Matthew cites, this is Matthew 2.18, he cites Jeremiah about Rachel weeping over her children. I looked through Jeremiah's sites, through where Jeremiah says that in Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, A couple interesting things stand out. And I remembered, it took me back. I don't know if you do this when you read scripture, but it took me back to the time we went through Jeremiah. And I've actually taught through Jeremiah twice here. (laughs) <laughs> which is kind of odd considering that I haven't even taught through, there's some books that Pastor Mike did and I haven't even done any of those once, but I did Jeremiah twice. Isn't that weird how life works out? Um, I love Jeremiah, by the way. Um, he came at a critical time in my life. Um, but I, re- I remembered this, me- uh, this passage, and it's a dream. Jeremiah chapter 31 is a dream that Jeremiah has. He says in Jeremiah 31, verse 26, At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. So he's prophesying, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of his prophecy, he says, I woke up, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Now, this prophecy, this dream that he's having, actually starts in Jeremiah 30, which is the unfortunate thing about a chapter system, is sometimes you forget that it doesn't stop where the chapter stops necessarily. Jeremiah 30, verse 1, this is where it starts, and I'm pointing this out because it's Christmas, and that's important. (laughs) You'll see why. Chapter 30, verse 1 says this, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And Jeremiah is unique, not in all the Bible, but among the prophets that he has an emphasis on the word of the Lord. He doesn't just say, thus says the Lord. He will often say, the word of the Lord came to me. In other places in the Bible, for example, 1 Samuel chapter 3 When Samuel hears the word of the Lord, the word is embodied. Because the word is said to be standing next to the altar when he speaks to Samuel. Or in Jeremiah, the opening chapter of his prophecy, it says that the word came to him and the word touched his lips. When we see that the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord we are actually seeing the early concept within Judaism, well, it wasn't Judaism back then, but within the Jews, within Israel, that Yahweh was both invisible and also visible, that he had two forms. So that when we get to passages that we read at Christmas, like John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John was saying something that people that read the Scriptures were already suspecting that God came to us in a physical, tangible form that can be touched and touch us. This is the word coming to Jeremiah. These prophecies matter. Obviously, it's in the Bible. But uh, this one is even quoted in the Christmas story. So he goes through, and I actually have highlighted um, the section. Um, I do this sometimes when I teach to make it easier to spot. But if you glance at my Bible, you'll see, Green paragraph, red paragraph, green paragraph, red paragraph. 
Because this prophecy alternates between doom and promise. Doom and promise. Doom and promise. Just like your dream that you had last night, if you remember it. They are weird. I, my dream last night, I, don't worry, I'm not going to share it. You know how that goes. I, it was weird the way things morphed and didn't make sense. When you wake up, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. How does dreams move like that? And so this prophecy goes back and forth. But what you see is in chapter 31, you see in verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you will be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. To the, the planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. There shall be a day. When watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. For behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman, and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. That's really good stuff he's saying. But then the the horror comes back, and it's in verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But, verse 21, set up road markers for yourself and make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you water, waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. And then in verse 26, he says, At this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. And then, do you know what Jeremiah does? He launches into one of the biggest prophecies in Scripture. The new covenant. Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And he goes on and says, the, how, the covenant I made with Moses and all them, they broke that one. And they went into exile, and that's why there's a lot of judgment. But I will make a new covenant with these people. And in verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. That's Jeremiah's prophecy. The nightmare after Christmas is floating in the midst of great hope. And Jeremiah lets us know. 
the nightmare comes with a dream of hope. And Matthew cites that verse from Jeremiah as if to say, yes, Rachel will rend the night with her lamentations, but those who know the prophecies of Jeremiah know that that nightmare is in the midst of great hope. What is Matthew doing? He's telling you and I that as Herod is slaughtering the innocents of Bethlehem, this is not how the story ends. This is the low point of a great dream in which we will wake up and say, that was sweet. So he says, hang in there, readers. You are yet to see what Christ will do. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. When we are drawn in at Christ's second coming, a great many other things in nature will begin to come right. The bad dream will be over. It will be morning. That's what we're looking for. And Matthew uses Jeremiah's words to say, the bad dream will be over. Do you know why it will be over? Because the very next verse in Matthew, the very next verse in Matthew chapter 2, <laughs> after quoting Jeremiah, is this. It's Matthew 2.19. But when Herod died... There's your hope. The kings of this earth die. Their policies do not last. They can erect what they want. They can do what they want, but they will die. The killers of the innocents will be themselves in the grave. So I want to finish with this concept, and we prayed this, that in Psalm 139, verse 22 we see David praying, I hate them with perfect hatred. Remember, he's talking about how he was so beautifully made and he's praising God for how intricately God made him. But then he goes and saying, God, may those who shed blood be banished. Take care of them. Wipe them out. And you're almost like, whoa, this is in the Bible. And yo, we read this at church. Usually we just read those quietly at home. <laughs> But then after saying, and I hate them, Lord, I hate them with a perfect hatred, he then launches into the part of the psalm that we love. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Why? Because David knows how he feels, but he does not want his feelings to lead his actions or his life. He feels anger and he feels hatred for the way children, let's just say in this context, children are used in the world. God, am I right to hate this way? Search me and channel my anger and my energy so that it is pleasing to you. Hate. Matthew chapter 5, to follow up Michael Beavers in quoting the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us not to hate our enemies, but to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So what do we mean by hating others with a perfect hatred? I think we mean this. And I, this is the big concept I, th I would like us to take home. Um, it's in Ephesians 6. You know this passage well. It's Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
Now, if we stopped there, we would say, cool, abortion's the devil. Trafficking's the devil. These people are the devil. And to vent our anger blindly like a madman shooting arrows in the dark. Not a good idea. Rather, though, Paul clarifies for us where the battle lies. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is Bible ease for human beings. They're made of flesh. They're made of blood. We don't wrestle against them. I don't wrestle against politicians. I don't wrestle against traffickers. I don't wrestle against the people who work at Planned Parenthood. They are not my spiritual warfare. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and he does not mean governmental. He's, he's let's hear him out. Against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Bible often links governmental authority with demonic authority. You see this in Revelation. You see this in Daniel 7, where beasts are rising up to tyrannize the people of God, and they're linked with a king on the earth. Demonic work and the powers of government sometimes work together. And Paul is saying, this is our battle. It's not the trafficker. It's not the Planned Parenthood employee. Nor is it the parent who's encouraging the abortion. Nor is it the boyfriend who's encouraging it. Nor is it, and Michael beautifully said this, nor is it the parents who, who felt compelled to sell their kids to slavery. They are not the enemy. The enemy is working behind these voices, behind these actions, and behind these people. So that when we, we can pray with David, I hate them with perfect hatred, not because we hate the people and their names and the faces we're seeing, but because we hate the devil's work behind the people. And that is a Christian's anger and where it's supposed to be directed. It's at the devil and at his demons and the way that they are wrecking the creation through their manipulation of human desire. Hate the demons who pressure girls through the cowardice of boyfriends and disgust or anger of their parents. Don't hate the boyfriend. Hate the demons who made the boyfriend lean on his cowardice. Hate the demons who persuade women through propaganda and lies of culture that it's just tissue or it's not a human yet. Hate the demons who permit murder under the guise of rights over my body or convenience. This will derail my career. It's not convenience. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's our enemy. That's our hatred. And that's what we're praying against the light of Christ, against the darkness of the fallen powers. So therefore, we work and we pray against the darkness. And we don't stop till Christ comes back. It's our job, the priesthood of the earth. It's our job to pray. So tonight, we're going to finish with praying. We're going to pray um, as the Lord leads you to pray.
for the world. We will bring